TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. everyone. You're listening to HBS After Hours. I'm Youngmi Moon, and I'm here again tonight with my buddies, Felix Oberholzer-G and Mihir Desai. Hi, guys. Hey, hey how are you? Me. Hey, hey so you. spring is here in Boston, finally. Oh, finally. finally. Amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> we have to wait. I know. There's a temptation to play hooky on days like today, but Indeed. I trust that you both didn't do that. Mm, not so much. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I showed up. I will say when spring gets so delayed, it's even more beautiful than it usually is, it is, right? The sky is bluer. Everybody's in a good mood. Everyone's in a great mood. And it's you just so pay for it with like a month of pain that we had for <laughs> last month. But besides that, it's great. So there's been an interesting development for our podcast, and that is we've started to get mail, which is yeah. really fun. So I thought <laughs> what I'd do to kick us off is I would share my favorite piece of mail that we've gotten so far. And Mihir, I'm going to throw this to you because this is about one of the topics that you had us talk about yeah. Um, so this is just week. this is just great. It's from Aaron Stark, who's actually a graduate of the school, and uh, he wrote to us about the chen- gender wage gap piece. He just provided this incredible historical example from about 130 years ago, uh, and the Waltham Watch Company, um, which apparently was the Facebook of its day, uh, <laughs> and their efforts to do exactly the kinds of things we were talking about, which is just you know equal pay for equal work. And how they experimented with daycare on location. And it's just a spectacular example of how, in a way, how persistent the issues are, but also of an organization 130 years ago thinking deeply about a problem, you know, that we still struggle with. The best thing is he enclosed that photo of the company. It's from a 130-year-old photo of this company and the daycare that they were providing for the for the women that were working there. Yeah, no, it was spectacular. That was really pretty cool. Well, having gotten this email, I think we want to love to hear from people. And in fact, we've set up an email address. That's right. Purposely for that. So go ahead. Yeah. It's hbsafterhours at gmail.com. Um, we love to get email. So send in your yeah, email. Absolutely. That would be send fantastic. Yes. Okay. So... Felix, I know you brought in a topic for us to talk about. I did. Uh, I want to talk about Apple's acquisition of this app. It's a magazine subscription app called Texture. Okay. All right. And then I also have a a topic I brought in having to do with the big tech giants. So those are our two topics for tonight. Okay, Felix, why don't you get us started? 
Yeah, so you probably saw Apple bought Texture. So this is an app uh, that provides access to about 200 magazines. So you pay a monthly subscription fee. It's very much like Netflix. And one of the ideas that people have been talking about is that it's going to be folded into Apple News. And this is sort of what we're beginning to see is the Netflix of other things. So you might remember uh, that Apple bought Beats, uh, not so long ago uh, with Spotify-like ambitions. And then before that, they bought Booklamp, which people described as the Pandora of books. Right. So let me ask you, is there such thing? Can there be something like the Netflix of news? Well, I have to say, I think this is very exciting. So what is the problem they're dealing with? I think the problem I'm dealing with is there are all these magazines. I want to read them all. I don't really want to subscribe to them all, and I want to get the best of those magazine articles. Okay. That's a real problem for me. And so the possibility of having a monthly service that curates that and provides it to me in a really beautiful way, I think that's exciting. So I just personally, I find it like an attractive possibility. And then business-wise, I think it's super interesting. I think it's a real shot across the bow at Facebook and Google you know, they're sending a signal about what they want to become. So, Credibility and journalism, exactly. high-quality pieces. Yeah, I mean, I, I think even in the announcement, they kind of took a shot at them, right? They were like, yeah, yeah, you know, those guys, they've been making money off the publishers, and they don't do anything, and they don't curate, and they don't control. And I think Apple's trying to take the high ground. And, like, you know, we're going to be a credible provider, and we're going to share the economics, right? Because, I mean, the worst part about Facebook and Google is they don't share the economics. And these guys share the economics of the articles. So I think it's hugely interesting. What do you think, young me? So I, I find it to be a really compelling proposition as well. Whenever a service provider provides both huge amount of choice and really great curation, I love that combination. I'm less optimistic about the economic potential, which is different than saying I don't think they can make money doing it. I just worry about the market size for a business like this and people's willingness to pay I'm sure I'm not the first person to say this, but in some ways there's already a Netflix of news and it's called the internet. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? I mean, there's just... And the subscription price happens to, to be, be zero. zero. <laughs> exactly. There's yeah. a huge amount of content out there. There are a lot of mechanisms by which people sift through the content and are able to make their way to the things that they want and they don't pay for it. And I think for a lot of people, that's fine. And so the alternative is that for a lot of people. Now, I do believe that there's a subset of people who, right. who really care about having access to things they would have missed otherwise. And so I think it's a compelling value proposition. I just don't know how big the market size is. What yeah. do you think, Felix? Yeah. So my sense is that I share your skepticism because there are apps like Flipboard yes. that do exactly – this sounds very much like a Flipboard, except you will have to pay $10 yep. per month, and Flipboard is free. Right. And so the question, I think, generally in the production and dissemination of news is now, how do you compete with free? How do you – what is that – let me make this maybe even more general. Think about newspapers, big newspapers like the New York Times. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, doing a fabulous job producing news. It's actually quite interesting to see when the New York Times breaks a story, how literally that story travels from place to place yeah. through the internet, even, even globally. Are you optimistic about 
the New York Times's, the Wall Street Journal's ability to keep doing this in the face of competition with free? Well, I think it's like many things in the internet, which is the biggest and the best get bigger and better. And a lot of the smaller players fall through, right? So I think the New York Times is going to do fantastic. I think the Wall Street Journal is going to do fantastic. The question is the second tier players. You know, is the Boston Herald going to survive? Or, you know, is the Providence Journal Bulletin going to survive? That's the deeper problem. And the local news problem, I think, is the real issue. I think the national news issues will get continue to be surfaced and they'll be a vibrant press. It's really the local stuff I, I worry about. So... Again, I think I might be less optimistic, <laughs> even about the New York Times and the Wall – well, less so about the Wall Street Journal. I think the Wall Street Journal is a slightly different beast. But the New York Times, first of all, I think all the national newspapers, the ones that are doing really well, we're sort of in a bubble right now, sort of the Trump bubble of news consumption. So that's the first thing. But the second thing is their ability to dictate what we talk about depends on their cultural relevance. And it's hard for me to imagine that next generation regarding the New York Times with the same kind of esteem and placing the same kind of credibility on it as an institution right. that, that we do. I remember when I went to college, one of the first things I did as I met my roommates in college is we collectively said, okay, we need to get a subscription to the New York Times right. <laughs> because it was our way of feeling like we were entering adulthood and we were trying to pretend we we knew things. But it's funny, if I think about college kids now, the likelihood that they enter college and they think, oh, this is a publication that we need to have access to on a regular basis, I think that doesn't even enter their minds. Well, I All think of that news has become so completely unbundled. So one of the interesting observations is, though, that the number of digital subscribers to the New York Times keeps going up. Yeah, right? it does. So they're adding about 150,000 yeah. new subscribers each quarter. Yeah. They're now at 2.6 million people who subscribe. And one of the fascinating things about newspaper economics is if you could magically jump into an old digital future, right. you actually don't need that big an audience in order to survive. And the reason is that, yes, you'll have a smaller audience and maybe they pay less than the advertisers used to pay, but you have a whole bunch of costs that you don't have. You no longer need to print. You no longer need to distribute uh, the newspaper that, that is being printed. And so, Wait, so you mean so much of the economic baggage right now comes from their legacy business? Yes. And all, having to hold both of them at the same time. That's right, right. That's exactly right. So when you look at the subscription prices of the New York Times, they do something very funny. You would think... We're oriented towards the future. We're making digital-only subscriptions super attractive, and then print is going to just go up in price, and we shepherd everyone to the digital subscription. If you look at the prices that they have, that's not what they do. There's big incentives to subscribe to the Sunday paper. Why? Oh, because the Sunday paper has all these ads. And right. so at the hmm. problem of newspaper companies is not so much, in my view, the end game, the future. There they can be quite profitable with, li with a limited size audience and maybe just the old people like us who yeah. <laughs> you yeah. have gotten yeah. used to yeah. reading the paper. But the problem is the transition. You're sitting on this incredible block of fixed cost that doesn't move with dwindling print subscriptions. But then the other piece of that is that even though they're profitable, they're still, relatively speaking, small businesses. So the New York Times is an example. What is it, a two, $3 billion business? Yes. It's a tiny business. And the only thing that gives it any kind of weight 
is its cultural relevance. Yes. And so the minute it begins to lose that, I mean, I think a larger question is, I mean, this is a little provocative, but do you think the New York Times has gained credibility over the last few years (laughs) or has it lost credibility over the last few years? As an institution. Yeah, unfortunately, I think it depends on who you ask. Yeah. I think they're, the resources they're putting on news today are incredible. Like these reporters are doing incredible work. And are they more respected? You know, I think by the people you would expect, they respect them even more than they ever did. And for the people who wrote them off, they like completely dismiss them. It's like, you know, it's just a litmus test. It's a political litmus test. What do you think, Felix? So my, my sense is that, that just like with many changes in, in society today, they have become more partisan. Uh, if I read the Times today, my intuition is I often see headlines that speak to partisan sentiment that don't quite match. Then, you know, after you're one of the few readers who make it to the 17th paragraph, you discover that, yeah, maybe things are not quite as clear-cut as the headline suggested. So in my individual reading experience, definitely they have to, they have become more partisan. And it's probably, if you worry about the economics of the newspaper business, it's probably exactly right. what you should it's be the doing. Right thing. Right. You're serving an audience. That's right. And, you know, People like me, who are probably somewhere in the middle of the political spectrum, were sort of losing out because just like the politicians flee for the left and the right door, the media move towards where the audience is. But I think that's a subtle but important shift because I do think when we were growing up, it was regarded as the objective arbiter of what is journalism, what is important. And I think there's been a a shift. The thing I'm interested in in part is these other organizational forms. So for example, ProPublica, which is an investigative body. That's non-profit. Not-for-profit. And Bezos buying the Post. You know, those are totally different ownership models where you're no longer a public companies. And in Bezos' case, he can write an infinite number of checks. And so that's a whole different model. So Mm. It's interesting. Will the New York Times do well? The question is, in, in, in one sense, from a finance perspective, is is that the right ownership structure? Right, you to have, have fa- some benefactor. Yeah. In? Well, in the Times case, it's a family with yeah. B, B mm-hmm. shares. Mm-hmm. In Bezos's case, it's a guy who's just going to write checks forever, conceivably. And in ProPublica's case, it's kind of a nonprofit. So, to me, part of the question here is in this transition, what organizational form kind of comes to comes to dominate, and what do they specialize in? Can I just come back to Texture for a second? I want to make sure and understand this. So it, it is different in, than Flipboard in the following sense. If Texture grows, can't you build a wall around your content? I know that goes against a lot of thinking, but if you want the economics to shift in your direction, isn't that the only thing you can do? Aren't otherwise we always at the mercy of Google and Facebook and giving it away for free? But the tension operating in the background is always advertising financing versus subscription. Yeah. And so, yes, I can rely completely on subscription, but my audience will be small. Or I can pursue a mixed model. So even in the New York Times today, mm-hmm. about 60% of the revenue, which is a big increase, is from subscriptions. Yeah. 40% is from advertising. But you cannot give up the 40%. And so yeah. for you to then say, oh, and I shut out all these advertisers who would love to talk to the readers who are not willing to pay a lot for news or for magazines, that's a very hard trade-off to make. I don't even know how important it is to put a wall around it anyway. Yeah, so maybe just, Yeah, just to give you an example. So uh, uh, about a week and a half ago, I was talking to Eugene Soltis for this podcast, and he gave a recommendation for a site called thebrowser.com. Mm-hmm. And he said oh, all I they do— Oh, I know do, the browser. Yes. yes. For th- you pay $30 a year. 
And every day you get sent four articles that this curator has chosen. The articles themselves are free. Like if you found them yourselves, you can click on them and they're totally free. But his ability to find them, and I have to say I've become a little addicted to it because they are fantastically (laughs) curated. This is even true for the Times, right? The Times paywall is leaky. Yeah. That is, you have access and then depending on where you come from, from social media, from somewhere else. But it's strategically leaky. It's strategically leaky, but it's leaky for that same, for that, same reason that some people will be willing to pay for curation and some people, maybe to go back to your point about cultural relevance, I think that is highly contested today. Do you guys think in 10 years the New York Times will be stronger than it is today or weaker? I think it will be strong. Stronger. You do? Yeah, absolutely. Do you think there'll be a print version of it, Felix? I don't think so. That'll be gone. I, I, will be, I would be very surprised if there was a print version 10 years from now. Interesting. Yeah. Fascinating. Thanks, guys. I want to talk to you guys now about four of the big tech giants. The four that I want to talk about are Facebook, Amazon, Apple, and Alphabet slash Google. And the reason I want to talk to you guys about this is whenever one of those names come up, now, when I'm in the classroom, when I'm in conversation with colleagues, with any in any context, there's just a growing sense that these four companies have gotten so big and so powerful, perhaps even too big to fail. I, on the other hand, believe that each one of these four companies is vulnerable in a particular way. Yep. So I have three questions for you, and then I want to dig into it a little bit. First <laughs> okay. of all, do you think that each one of these four companies is vulnerable as well. Oh, yeah. I think everybody's vulnerable. I mean, we can talk about which ones in more different ways. Differences, but yes, there's some vulnerability for each. Question number two. Which of the four do you believe right now, as we sit here, is the most vulnerable? I think it's Apple, without any doubt. I'm very worried about Apple. What about you, Mayher? I'm going to go with Alphabet and Google. Wow. Yeah. I'm going to go with Apple. (laughs) <laughs> so let, should we dig? I mean, no, no, one, yeah. one more question. Okay. Question number oh, three, okay. and then we'll dig in. <laughs> yeah. Question number three is, uh, which of the four is the least vulnerable? Uh, yeah. I'm going to go with Alphabet slash Google. All right, so we'll bring it on. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go with Amazon. I'm going to go with Facebook. So we got a lot of diversity <laughs> here. Let's dig in. All right, let's dig in. So uh, let's start with Facebook just to get it out of the way. <laughs> okay. So uh, I think Facebook is so intertwined in our lives that what they do, technically speaking, is, you know, of course, like there's a million companies who could do exactly this. And by the way, they could build a more beautiful website and everything. But it's a little bit like trying to move the center of a city the place where people assemble in front of the church. How do you do that? The problem is if somehow you could move everyone to a next place, that, of course, would be easy. But that's not possible. So I'm just giving you a few examples. I have to watch my nephews and nieces play soccer. But I'm also you want you to, have you to want watch. to you want I, to watch. I, I, I have to, like I would not, my life would not be complete if I couldn't watch them <laughs> okay. play soccer. Okay. But I'm also part of other groups, political groups, music, 
my, even though I'm not a heavy Facebook user, there are so many social things are built around Facebook that I was not surprised at all, given the storm of outrage that we experience. What has happened in the last couple of days? A, no one quits their Facebook. B, Facebook has just made the decision to make more advertising space available on their service. Why is that? Because there's unprecedented demand. Hmm. Okay, so A, I just deleted my Facebook account after our conversation <laughs> a couple of weeks ago. So I am one of the people who deleted it. So now you're socially totally isolated. Well, I, I was before. And I mean, oh, okay. it's, just, it's a story, it's a story of my life. Way, I'm perfectly happy He's that way. Okay. Happy okay. That Second, way. you didn't mention any regulatory threat, any possibility of changes to what their business model are, is because of the questions about privacy and people rethinking uh, data protection. And that seems like some like a like a huge oversight so uh just today there was a there was a super interesting article about the expected changes as a result of the european privacy yep. legislation that will go into effect uh, uh sometime in late may if you're google and if you're apple and if you're the, one of the big guys it's easy to get people to consent because they have an idea of what these services yep. do yeah. if you're ad tech company called no one and no one has ever heard of you, there's zero chance that you will give consent. And so the expectation is that actually Google's and Facebook's market share will go up I'm as a result of I'm telling you guys, privacy. regulation is going to be That's what you made that point? Absolutely. Yeah. I'm going to move us on, though, because we've talked about Facebook a lot. Apple. So, Felix, you said you are very worried about Apple. I'm very worried Apple's about Apple. Apple's the one I'm the most worried about yeah. as well. So, I started to get worried when I saw, do you remember the IP lawsuits between Samsung and Apple? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that silly debate around who has invented the round edges that then make the phone so mm -hmm. different. Mm -hmm. When that happens between companies that were arguing <laughs> about trivial details of design, I know there's no differentiation left. I know the Apple phone is a wonderful, wonderful phone. And it's just about as good as many phones that many people produce. And so then the question is, what is next? Well, I think in general, what I see in the digital space is services is next. Yes. Yeah. So if services in Apple is about $30 billion today. That's less than 15% of revenue. And then they do a really like I should be super excited about them buying Beats. Such a small business. Yeah. I should be super excited about them buying Bookland. Yeah. Such a small business. Texture. That's desperation. Wait, you want them to be buying big businesses? What do you want them I to want be doing? They're throwing off like $60 billion of cash a year. From phones. That's right. And from other devices, but yeah. From phones. Yeah. And that's a dying business. See, this is the problem, which is people have been talking about the death of Apple for the last eight years. It's been dramatically overstated, Right. The economics of their business are amazing. Will there be another big device? Maybe, maybe not. Their economics are solid when they're just iterating new devices. And you just dismissed $30 billion of services revenue as if it was nothing. They built $30 billion of services revenue. <laughs> That's something. And there's a lot of runway ahead. So I'm on Felix's side here. So I'll say, Thank you. I'll say three <laughs> things. So number one, they're losing in the world. They are losing in China. They are irrelevant in India. They're losing in major markets. Number two, the services piece that Felix described, $30 billion, most of that's from their app store. 
So even the $30 billion, I think, is somewhat deceptive. This is a $200 billion company. And then the third thing I'll say is I think they're behind in technology. Out of all four of these companies, they're the furthest behind in artificial intelligence, furthest behind in machine learning. Now, the flip side to that is they have the strongest balance sheet in the world, yeah. perhaps. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I like Tim Cook. I would never underestimate yeah. him. But if you really listen to what you just said, Mahir, it feels like they're in harvest mode. In other words, yes, they can keep going, they can keep producing, but they're harvesting. They're harvesting the fruits of innovation that they pioneered well, and, over the and, last And what, years. like Alphabet, which makes all its money from search algorithms, is like, you know, not harvesting? So, <laughs> try, so try should we to move co- to that? Try to compare a conversation with the Google Assistant to a, com- to a conversation with Siri. But that's a but sign I, I, of how far behind they are. That is, yeah, that's right. In... in Artificial intelligence. But let's move to Alphabet, Google. I'll give you two things. I mean, at least two things. One is um, I think they're the most concentrated in their businesses. And the they're so concentrated on search. They haven't developed other businesses to speak of. And they failed at developing other businesses. Um, it's not clear to me how search evolves over time. Um, there's some interesting new browsers that are popping up to avoid the data problems that people feel with Google. And they appear to be very, very good. There's one I think called, it's called Duck, Duck, Goose or something. And then last, I will say, I don't buy into the controlling shareholder structure. And this may be a little bit nerdy. That's your yeah, that's you hate that. I look, know. I think, look, they are, they have demonstrated that. You're talking about the dual class thing? Well, they have 10x shares, the three guys have 10x shares. They're not the shares. only ones. They're not the many, only ones. Many companies they're not the only that. ones, but they have a problem with spending on things that go nowhere. And I think that's problematic. And that's the, their whole vision is like moonshot everything, which is fine. But I think there's an enormous risk that if the search business somehow pauses, then uh, there's nothing else. There's nothing else there. And I would worry about that problem. I'm being a little more aggressive about it because you guys are so like pro-alphabet. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think that's worrisome. And I don't like the governance structure. Yeah. I don't like the governance structure at all. So tell me why I'm wrong. Well, I don't know if you're wrong, but here's why I feel like they're the most robust of the four right now. So number one, I feel like their basic service, which is their search, is the most functionally vital of all. If Google went down today, wouldn't we all just go to Bing? <laughs> you know, I'm mean, no, I'm just serious. Are you being serious? Like, I'm you think being Google- absolutely serious. There's no comparison. They are light years ahead in terms of the artificial intelligence embedded in their search engine relative to Bing. It's the closest thing to a utility in the West that you can that I can think of. Yeah. Now, not in all parts of the world, but in the West. I think it's the closest thing to a utility. So the second thing I would say is that the bulk of their revenue comes from, I would argue, the most robust form of advertising, which is their homepage search-based advertising, because they're not chasing you. This is not targeting you and chasing you. This is you typing in, I'm looking for beaches in Maine, and they're giving you back Beaches in Maine, yeah. which is the most robust form of advertising out there. And it's incredibly lucrative for them. Yeah. I agree that they haven't built out an ecosystem of businesses, but they have built out an ecosystem of services that I think has become deeply, deeply ingrained in our lives. Whether you're talking about Google Maps or you're talking about Gmail or Google Docs or YouTube. Yeah, that's true. And all of the rest. 
And all of that is a mechanism, I think, for them to continue to get better and better in being able to provide the most sophisticated artificial intelligence in the world. And I think it's particularly impressive if you think about the privacy conversation that we're having at this moment in time. Yep. Uh, if you type in fishing rod into a search box, there is a very high likelihood that you're in the market for a fishing rod. Yep. I don't need to know anything else about you. That is, I, I actually don't think we will ever get there, but if we were to move towards a world where advertisers are essentially blind to the identity of people who yeah. are online, yeah. I I cannot think of any other business that will survive as That's elegantly right. as Google That's right. because they don't actually, they need they all need so they, little. they still need little information. They need so little. So little to produce a really robust advertising They're model. always being helpful. You go in and you search for something and they will serve you back both search results as well as advertising, but it's in response to what you've asked for. So yeah. it's, it's and the just, most... I guess I want to turn it back on you, though, right? Like it's, which is, where is the innovation? The, the, the tools you talked about, they bought YouTube. Um, Gmail's been around forever and has issues. I mean, where is the next thing? No, but... I mean, it, that's kind of what we said about Apple, right? So and are we just, are they just milking the ad business forever? I don't think it's so, milking if intelligence is something that exists along an, a curve. And they're constantly, constantly moving up that curve. Like we just talked about phones. Yeah. yeah. Android is now by far yep. the dominant operating system for mobile phones. This, this to me is like a, a big change enough, away yeah. from the PC desktop now to mobile. Uh, lots of places when I travel, lots of places I I have Google Maps. Google Maps is connected to transportation services, These restaurants, everything that I want to Fair do revolves now around a mobile service. And this is what's interesting, Apple versus, versus Google, it reminds me so much of the time when Apple almost went bankrupt the first time around. They decided to be small and beautiful and high-priced. And as a result, the thing that really grew, the desktop market, was just not a market that they could ever capture. Even at the best of their times, they're, you know, not really relevant. And I think the same is happening now in mobile devices, where the iOS, with all its beauty and privacy and things you can love about it, it is just basically not relevant for anyone. Oh, my God. iOS is not relevant for anyone except for the beauty 20, and the privacy. Yeah, hello, beauty and it's privacy. It's 20% global market share. And what am I supposed to react to that? Is that like low or what? Well, if the competitor has 70% global market share, it is sort of low. Why do I need to – why is it the fact that uh, Android operating system is so prevalent? Why does that make me want to adopt it? So here's here's um, how I'm thinking about why why the mobile operating system is so important. When you think about Apple's history and the reason why it declined the first time around, it all had to do with incentives of other companies to co-invest with Apple mm -hmm. to produce software at that mm -hmm. point in time. Today, we're seeing exactly the same thing. If I'm a bank in Kazakhstan and I'm thinking about who do I partner with, you I know, see. I want to do this mobile banking thing, of course, no one can imagine life without Candy Crush. But if Candy Crush becomes popular, it gets ported to all the mobile operating system. If you're thinking about expensive complements to the mobile operating system, that's no longer true. Now I'm looking at what mm -hmm. kinds of phones do people have, and I integrate with the mobile operating systems Felix. that are. And so you're not going to integrate with Apple. I'm iOS? not going to integrate with Apple because no one has Apple. 
So, Felix, what's interesting about what you say in this notion of compliments, if you had gone to CES, the big consumer electronic show in Vegas, I don't know, eight, nine years ago, Apple was the center of CES. And Hmm. every company was trying to figure out how to position itself within that Apple ecosystem. If you went to CES last year, you would have felt like, Apple was completely non-existent. But all the innovation, everything people were showcasing had nothing to do with Apple anymore, which is just a small case. But before we run out of time, I I want to talk. say I dug in my heels a little bit, but you guys made a lot of progress with me. (laughs) (laughs) But I do feel like we've made you worried about one of your favorite brands, which, you know, but anyway, I want to hear about Amazon because you named that as as the one that you. I just think um, they are so deep in people's lives and consumers and I think that is a really exciting Mm. thing. I think their strategies in brick and mortar is really interesting. I think they're doing some really fascinating stuff there. I think they have an economic model that is fantastic. Um, And I don't know who really gives them a run for their money. So I know this is going to sound very strange, but sometimes I think of Amazon the way I think of Walmart historically. You know how Walmart built this amazing machine in Mm. the United States? And then you think, oh, my God, these guys are going to take over the world. And then that basically, with few exceptions, Mexico and so on, that didn't happen. And the reason was that it's a brick-and-mortar company. It's a logistics company. And so I think one vulnerability that will be really interesting to watch is as, say, Amazon goes, tries to go into Eastern Europe where you have Allegro that is the dominant Mm. player. Can they really really play? I'm reading the flip card acquisition as can't really build a thing from scratch. Mm -hmm. We have to buy someone, which is, of course, exactly Walmart's story. I don't think that's true. I think Amazon was kicking flip cards. But but anyway, that's a separate conversation. Yeah. Yeah. But Walmart's going to win that deal, right? We will, I think, yeah, yeah. yeah, we'll have to see. But in a way, where Walmart made very, where where they made the right acquisitions of a fairly big, important player, they ended up being globally successful. And everywhere else, they completely struck out. And sometimes I'm wondering, this sounds so strange, even in my head, sometimes I'm wondering if Amazon is just a new Walmart. Hmm. That's pretty um, mind-bending. Yeah. But I think it's interesting. I think the physical Mm. space is is really interesting. Okay, guys, we don't have that much time left, but um, it's time for our picks. Who wants to go first? I'll go first. Uh, It's probably... You also, I, I love reading The Economist. And one of the temptations, obviously, when you look at the magazine, one of the temptations is to read the leaders, you know, make sense of the news today. But actually, what I end up loving uh, is I go to the obituary first. I think you're there, so strange. I love obituaries <laughs> too. I love, I love the New York Times obituaries. Oh <laughs> Their goodness. obituaries are amazing. Yeah. It's, sometimes it's people I have never even heard of. Yeah. And there's always something really quirky, something that is sort yeah. of speaks to who the person really is. So I'll give you one example. Uh, Milos Forman, the, the, yeah. the director, uh, died. Uh, and they described how he really didn't like professional actors. So what do you do? His idea, which I thought was totally brilliant, he had two cameras always. And you would never know which one is oh, on. Oh, wow. That's great. So the method actor <laughs> doesn't actually know which camera <laughs> right. to act towards. <laughs> and that's how he got 
more natural behavior, more and interesting things. And you got that things. from the obituary. And I got this That's from the obituary. That's fantastic. That's a good one. All right. What about you? Um, I love obituaries too, by the way. I mean, I think they're fantastic. Um, so I have a, a little bit of a geeky suggestion, which is a working paper that came out at the end of last year by Jerry Auten and David Splinter, who are two uh, very good people at the Treasury Department. They have a paper that undercuts, I think, very effectively the Piketty and Sayaz notion oh, of really? income inequality. Okay. Piketty and Sayaz, the original work goes back, I think, almost 10 or 12 years now. Yeah. Um, and it is about rising income inequality. Here's the issue. You know, first, about five years ago, Alan Auerbach and Kevin Hassett wrote a devastating critique of uh, the Piketty book and some of that original analysis. This is – something that completely undercuts the idea that income inequality has grown significantly over the last 50 years. Hmm. And in fact, the estimates – it is, by the way, still the case. Income inequality has grown, but not nearly as much as the popular notion is. I think it's so important because I've – you know, I mean, I don't know, not to get on a soapbox, but there's this notion that the world is going to hell in a handbasket and income inequality is going through the roof and everybody – well, wait a second. The data is not nearly what you think it is. And so – I don't know. I think it's a, just a it's wonderful – It's a working paper. Yeah, and it's a wonderful corrective and it's not getting the press it deserves because it goes so against kind of – What we all believe. What we all want to believe huh. or we think have now come to believe. Yeah. Um, and Very it's a really careful piece of work. So Jerry Auten and David Splinter – and it's got the most boring title. It's like Income Inequality in the United States. Um, but I think it's awesome. really worth reading. Definitely going to check that out. Okay, so my recommendation this week is a 15-minute video, even though there's actually no video and it's only audio. <laughs> uh, recently, Southwest Airlines, they had that engine failure oh, in yeah. midair, oh, yeah. uh-huh. right? Yeah. And the engine blew out. It blew open a window, and there was a terrifying 15 minutes for that plane. And you can go online. And you can listen to the pilot of that plane land oh, the plane. Awesome. And it's the conversation between her and air traffic control. Her name is Tammy Jo Schultz. She's among the first female Navy fighter pilots yeah. ever. Mm, in this. Okay. And that's how she trained. She was never in combat because she wasn't allowed. Yeah. But she became an instructor. And then she became a pilot for Southwest Airlines. And she's piloting this plane. And suddenly there's this terrifying moment. And you can hear her. She is cool as a cucumber. Yeah. The number of commercial female pilots is apparently like 5%. You know, wow. and sometimes you board yeah, a plane yeah. and you, you yeah. do register. Yeah, you see, yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. And it's just, I got to tell you, first of all, I'm always inspired by ordinary people doing extraordinary yeah. things and being reminded that so many ordinary people are quite extraordinary. But I have to say, when you see a woman like in a position like that, just... Keep, oh, that's it's, great. It's, that is great. It's Fabulous. really amazing to listen to. So I think that's a – can I ask you a question about yeah, this? Yeah, So I think about Sully, Sullenberger. Yes. So – It's like that. But is it – but here's the question, which yeah. is why do I know – and why do most people know Sully Sullenberger's name? And I don't think people know Tammy Joe's name. Is that – I don't I don't know, but I have to tell you, this woman's cool. There's a moment where she says to the air traffic controller, you know, we've lost part of the plane <laughs> and, and you can hear the air traffic controller saying, excuse me, you've, and she says, yes, we've lost part of the plane. I need to land immediately. You know, it's, it's really, oh, it's really something. Well, that's a great yeah, suggestion. It's really something. Anyway, thanks everyone for listening. This is HBS After Hours. It's 
an audio. It's just a. It's it's audio, but like you can, I can only get it like on YouTube. Yeah. And so with the transcript, and what's incredible is how mundane it is. It's like, you know, she's just landing the plane. Yeah. And she's organizing like emergency personnel to come and everything. Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks Running Shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning. It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Go 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more.